Hello, I'm Carlo Gabler, and I'm here today on behalf of the Irish Cultural Centre in Hammersmith, London. As part of its remit, the centre provides a platform for Irish authors to launch, promote, and discuss their work. The ICC's inaugural Literary Festival in autumn 2020, of which I was a part, showcased a number of Irish writers from all parts of Ireland, from Canada, and from America. This slightly shorter series is going to focus specifically on leading voices and writers from Northern Ireland. I am pleased to be launching the series with someone whom I think, I know, I believe, needs very little by way of introduction. Mary McAleese, legal counsel, activist, politician, doctor of canon law, president of Ireland, writer. Her memoir, Here's the Story, will form the basis of our discussion, but I'm sure we will talk about other things, including what is happening as we speak, which is the inauguration of President Byron. President Biden. <laughs> there was a Freudian slip. Um, okay, the first thing I want to want to do, just so that people can understand a bit about the um, the earth, the humus from which you sprung. You are a, a confluence of County Down and County Roscommon. You're, you've got these two strains. Just tell us in a very truncated form where your forebears came from and how they how they ended up in, in Belfast. Well, they were country people, and like a lot of country people from, uh, my father was from a very small farm in County Wiscommon, um, subsistence farm um, in North County Wiscommon, near the town of, between the towns of Carrick and Shannon and Boyle. Um, and he left there at 14 um, to seek his fortune in Belfast, um, and uh, where his three aunts had gone to seek work. Uh, one of them, the mother of a man very strongly associated with the place called the Irish Cultural Centre. That's Jim O'Hara. And uh, you probably know Jim, of course, from the centre. And um, so uh, he he came from rural Wiscommon to Belfast uh, uh, to work as a, an apprentice barman. Uh, my mother, um, her people were county down sheep farmers um, who um, had um, gone to the um, city. My grandfather had been in the old IRA. And um, so um, that hadn't gone down very well in the area that he was from in County Down or indeed with his parents. So um, he and my grandmother made their lives away from their farm, uh, their family farm um, in County Down up in the, at, the, in, at the top of Sleeve Crook where the lagging rises. And they came and they, uh, they lived in Belfast. Um, in fact, my mum originally was born in the town of Maharan Derry. That's where he, was, he got work there as a bread server with Barney Hughes's bakery. And then he moved to Ardoyne. And what brought them to Ardoyne was really almost ignorance in a way. Um, they didn't know Belfast. They didn't know anything much about it. And um, they hadn't very much money, but there were houses available in Ardoyne because nobody really else wanted to live there. It was a sectarian quagmire even then. And so they um, they brought their small family there and the family grew to 11. Um, and my mum became an apprentice hairdresser to one of my father's aunts who had come from Roscommon, set up a little business uh, just opposite our Doyne Chapel. And, uh, and that's how he met my mum and how I ended up being uh, born and reared in our Doyne. You lived in, in, in many different um, houses, households in that, that area. <laughs> Well, they were not. What happened? My mum and dad started out, you know, just with the two of them in a in in one room in somebody else's house. You know, they were tenants in somebody else's house, lodgers, you may say. And then um, one after another, rather rapidly, my mum got married at. Uh, she was married at nineteen. She had me at twenty, and by the time she was thirty-eight, she'd had eleven pregnancies and nine live children. So as the family got bigger. Um, we moved and we didn't, we never moved very far. You could have thrown a stone from the house that we left to the house we were going to. Uh, the only difference was that the houses were just a little bit bigger each time uh, to accommodate the growing clan. And 
one of those houses, which 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 um, it establishes threads that reappear all the way through the book, was on the Woodvale Road. That's right, the top of the Shankill Road, top, the, which Woodvale is at the top of the Shankill. Road. As you know, uh, the Woodvale Road is an extension of the Shankill Road. Um, actually, Jim that lived there too, um, Jim O'Hara. Jim was uh, born and raised just a few doors up from me. It was by and large a Protestant area, but we were one of very few Catholics who lived there. We just literally at the back of the chapel, uh, the back wall of our drawing chapel, um, the long, 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 um, big granite wall um, of the chapel um, was what we could see really from our from our house, it was, and um, it was right across the road from us. Um, and so that's where I lived at the top of the Shankill Road. Uh, the Shankill Road was for us growing up. Um, it, in those days, although now, of course, uh, associated really strongly with loyalism and, and even then, nonetheless, it was our hinterland, you know, for shopping and for um, just our community. It was our community growing up. And uh, I thought nothing of, uh, because my friends, most of my friends growing up were Protestant, apart from my school friends, because I went to mm. Catholic schools. But outside of school, my friends were all Protestant. So I would meander down the Franco Road with my friend Florence um, and we would meander into the Reverend Sidney Callaghan's church, um, Protestant minister, a great, wonderful character, who eventually married her uh, when she married a Scottish soldier in Thetville Barracks in Lisburn. And let, let, let me tell you, for Catholic girls, my sister was her bridesmaid. All my family were at that wedding. It wasn't a very safe thing to be doing in those days in our, our drawing, for our drawing Catholics to be going um you know, to having to have much to do with Scottish soldiers and in particular their weddings. Um, you mean you'd have, you could have got tarred and feathered for a lot less. And that would have been, of course, by uh, by supporters of the IRA, if not the IRA itself. Mm. Um, so um, you know, there were all those kind of um, ongoing tensions that uh, that we didn't actually we didn't pass too much remarks on. They were part of the wallpaper, if you like, growing up. The um, the Woodvale House, uh, you had some neighbours um, whose names I'll return to later. The Shaws yes. and the O'Reillys. The Shaws lived next door to you and they were... No, the, Shaw, the Shaws actually lived next door to the O'Reillys. Oh, but they, they lived, lived just a few doors up from us. Uh, uh, we, were, we, we were houses with no houses facing us, a, a long terrace of houses. And um, we were just a few doors from the Shaws. They were the most lovely family, Plymouth Brethren. Um, and their daughters and their sons were in and out of our house all the time as we were in and out of their house. Um, they were great friends. When their daughter, Anna, got married, my sister was also her bridesmaid. One of my other sisters, uh, mm. Kate, was her bridesmaid. Um, and they very generously, kindly um, bought her a beautiful white dress knowing that she'd be coming up to her first communion and that that dress would also do her first communion. So that was the kind of, you know, lovely generosity there was. Rather regrettably, their son, um, um, their son uh, joined the Loyalist paramilitary organisation and went out one night in the early 1970s and um, uh, murdered five people. Four of them were Catholics, um, just random. These were all random killings. Uh, including a young girl who was just serving petrol in a in a petrol station, but the the fifth person they killed, they killed uh, very close to our home on the other side of the chapel, the what we would call the front side. That we were on the Woodvale Road side, but the chapel was at the apex of two roads, the Crumlin Road and the Woodvale Road. And on the Crumlin Road side, where the main entrance to the chapel was, they killed a man who was walking past that entrance, and um, he. Um, that poor man was a Protestant man on his way to work, uh, but they presumed because he was close to the chapel, they thought he was Catholic. And um, my cousin and also Jim's cousin, Jim O'Hara's cousin, the guy called Paddy Cassidy, Paddy had a little uh, newsagent right across the street and um, he ran out and was the first um, on the scene when that poor man died. And he, um, he, uh, he, he too, he initially made the same mistake. He thought he was a Catholic and he did what Catholics do. You know, they whisper the act of contrition and the death traumatized Paddy oh, just dreadfully. And it turned out, of course, we knew the man. He was quite a close neighbor of ours. And um, he only had the one little daughter. I think she was about seven or eight when he died. And um, so uh, John, anyway, John Shaw had killed him. And by, by you know, life is just so full of these strange circular coincidences. Um, when I went to the bar and was practicing at the bar, one of the first cases I was given 
um, involved going down to the cells for these young men who were loyalist, uh, young loyalist um, assassins, essentially, um, uh, were being held on a bail application. And when I went in, I discovered one of them was John. So I had to recuse myself. He didn't want me to do it anyway. And um, but he admitted to all the killings. And the only one that he re expressed regret for was the, the good Christian man that he had killed. And I said to him, in the name of God, John, but sure, look, you know, you live beside us as Catholics. And he said, yeah, but you're not like them. And I said, well, the only difference is that you know us. Anyway, I didn't do his bail application. Um, and um, sad to say, um, you know, the impact on his parents of what he did was appalling. It just ruined their lives. Um, and um, and, and uh, the, many years later, uh, that little girl whose father had been murdered on that day, uh, and, and my, uh, my cousin had gone to help him, um, uh, she went to the historical inquiries team, uh, the, the members of the, the police force in Northern Ireland, to see, could she find out anything about her father's death? Because it had never been discussed. Her mother had early onset Alzheimer's, God help her. She was raised by relatives and they never wanted to talk about it. And in that, in the file, she found a reference to me because uh, some years later, when I was doing a radio broadcast and I was asked about deaths uh, that had, you know, particularly just grabbed me in some way or really, you know, spoke to me in some way, um, I had mentioned him uh, because I remembered him very well. He walked past our house on the way to and from work and I had mentioned him. Um, and so she, I was president by then, and she came to the Aris, um, lovely uh, lady with her husband, and um, told me her story. And I then said, look, I think I should tell you about my cousin Paddy, because he went to his grave with this sense of, you know, questioning, had he done right that day? You know, um, would, would the family think it was an awful, disrespectful thing for a Catholic to have said this Catholic prayer? And when I told her, what he had done, she just started to cry. And she told me that she was delighted that somebody had helped to prepare her father mm. for, you know, for entry into heaven. And that he didn't die alone. And importantly, that he hadn't died alone and that, that he had died with somebody who was trying very hard to care for him. Mm. You, you, you create a, um, as that, well, there are many stories, many threads, and together they create this sense of Northern Ireland as a very, um, a, a place whose violence is extremely intimate in the sense that um, people, um, it isn't strangers doing it to strangers, people are no. very it's closely neighbors. entwined. I mean, the Shaw case that you refer to was your second um, case at the bar when you became a, a barrister. Your previous case, I'll just mention en passant, was somebody you also knew very well because He'd attacked your house. And... He'd attacked my house. My brother went to school with his brother. Yeah. Uh, my, my, my brother was, my brother, one of my brothers, my five brothers is profoundly deaf. And he, um, he had been at school with this uh, young man who also was in and out of our house quite a lot. They just lived around the back of us. And his brother obviously had joined um, a very, very seriously, seriously evil uh, loyalist paramilitary organization. And first they came... And they gathered at our corner uh, one night um, and they broke up paving stones and uh, put them through our windows and frightened the wits out of us because it was only my mother there with the children. My dad was at work uh, in the pub on the Falls Road. And even at that, my father had found it very hard to get home in the evenings. Um, mm. It was just too dangerous crossing time. There was a lot of sectarian stuff going on. And so... Um, that night, um, we were petrified. We were terrified. And, you know, the police were only like five or six minutes away and we phoned them, but they didn't come. Uh, we, the attack happened about 10 o'clock at night, but they didn't come till two o'clock in the morning. And there was a woman, you know, with nine children. Um, the youngest was only, um, you know, a very tiny uh, baby. And uh, I was the oldest. And we were literally frightened out of our skins now. I, I remember I, for the first part of that attack, I literally was rooted to the spot. I couldn't move. And the people who did move, my sister Nora, who's younger than me, she took control. My younger brother Damien, a lot younger than me, he took control. They were so good. Um, the younger ones in the family, you know, seemed to be so tutored in, in the way of coping with crisis. And I was rooted to the spot now uh, because I knew this could get really nasty. But anyway, we were fortunate enough in one respect because although the police didn't come that night, 
um, a white car turned up outside um, slowly um, came into view and it was far we could see the car but we couldn't see what the people in it were doing or saying to the crowd that was gathered the this this throng of of rioters essentially and um we didn't know for quite some time that car that they anyway, were the crowd scattered and they didn't come back they didn't reform but the that, that car kept circling and to be honest we initially thought that the whole point of the riot had been to get our father to come home early from work so they could kill him. And we thought that that car was connected to the plan to kill my father. Anyway, it turned out that it wasn't, that the IRA had been listening in on the police radio and that they had sent out their own squad car um, to get rid of the crowd, the rioters, and to make sure they didn't come back um, and that we would be safe. So, you know, that was that's our doing. Um. When you 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 include a poem in the book, which um, talks about your awareness of what it's like to live in an oppressive sectarian atmosphere, um, and in the last stanza you talk about um, your eyeless back, sort of prickling with life because you know that you're being watched. Mm. You're being watched because you're the other. Because you're the other, because you're Catholic, because you're yeah. school uniform. How old, how old were you when you became aware of that? And how did you cope with that? I probably was very young uh, when I became aware of that. I mean, I because from I started going to the park, the local Woodville Park, on not exactly on my own, but with my friends, uh, particularly with our Protestant friends, and in fact, only with our Protestant friends, um, I was very aware that we were the other. Um, even in our street, we were aware that we were the other because we were the first Catholic family um, in the particular street that we lived in then, which was just slightly above the Woodville Road at that time, a place called Mountain View Gardens. And um, there were neighbours there who wouldn't allow their children to play with us because we were Catholics. Mm. Uh, but they were they were exceptional. Um, the rest of the neighbours were all really very welcoming and kind and good to us. And we made friends for life there. Um, so I was aware of our otherness there, very definitely. I mean, when we moved into the place, I was only a little toddler when we moved in, but my father tells the story, um, or God rest him, of when we moved in, it must have been summertime because we were only in five minutes when somebody stuck red, white, and blue bunting and a Union Jack um, uh, on our across our gable. And uh, my father, of course, went out and took it down. And the next thing, it was put back up again. And one of our neighbours on the other side um, came into my father and said, a Protestant neighbour came in and said, look, Harry, we had nothing to do with that. That's not us. And the neighbours on the other side, who are also a Protestant family, who despised anything to do with the orange, you know, orange order, they were, they were, um, they were very, very, um, we would call good living Christian family. And they had nothing whatsoever. They absolutely had no time for the orange order. We went on holidays with them year in, year out. Um, you know, so... But but nonetheless, you were aware of being different. And then when we went, particularly when as a child, I went to the park with my friend Florence. If I hadn't had her, if we didn't have her with us, um, we would never, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have been able to go because mm. um, she kept an eye out for us. We would only be there, we wouldn't be there long when somebody, I, the first time I heard the word Fenian uh, was in that park. So you wouldn't be there a few minutes when somebody would point you out as a Fenian and somebody would try to be provocative. But um, they were dealing with a Rottweiler with Florence. And, uh, and I always think she was so courageous. I mean, she took them on. She flattened people on our account. And these were people that she was at school with. You know, she had to go and face them in the schoolyard the next day, but no bother to her. Um, so, so I was aware. I was always, you know, it was always there. It was in the ether. Even in the shops, you know, we knew that there were some shops where you'd get a smile and some sh shops where you wouldn't. You know, you'd, you'd be almost snarled at, you know. I mean, it's very interesting because it's something that people from outside, I mean, I live in Northern Ireland, don't uh, find it find difficult to understand. And also, it's something that people prefer to disallow. They, they, yes. th there's a very, very strong feeling nowadays that there was a few, a bit of occasional bad apples getting up to malarkey kind of like over there. But you know, everything was grand, whereas in fact, um, on an epic scale, it was anything but grand. 
you're I, right. Yeah. You're I, so right. I wonder whether was why so reading this book, and it's a fascinating book, I thought, was this connected to why you then decided to study the law and become a barrister in Northern Ireland? And I was also yes. curious, why didn't you go to Dublin? Well, I would have I would have if I hadn't been the oldest of nine children, Carlo, and my parents didn't have the money. Oh. Um, um, I got into Trinity. I was accepted into Trinity, and I had to get the letter, you know, from the from the bishop to say, or the archbishop to say, I could go. And we had done all that, but realistically, um, my parents would never have been able to afford. Um, there was you know, there were eight kids coming behind me. And um, so it just wasn't, it really wasn't a runner. Plus, of course, Queen's University in Belfast had a really, really good law faculty. So, and I'd got in there. Um, so why wouldn't I go there when it was on the doorstep? And that's mm. what I did. I went to my local university and never regretted that. Um, and um, so that's, but the reason why I studied law, I've often kind of tossed this around in my mind, um, but among the heroes that I grew up with, and, and there were a few. Um, uh, my father had left school at 14, but he was very well read and very interested in Irish history, ferociously interested in Irish history. And he introduced me as a youngster uh, to Daniel O'Connell and, uh, and the story of Daniel O'Connell, you know, that Daniel became a lawyer um, really by the grace of God. The penal laws which had prevented Catholics from being lawyers changed just in time to allow him to become a lawyer. And then he goes on to Parliament. And then he he goes to France and he's there at the time of um, the French Revolution and the violence frightens him permanently. He sees that once the genie of violence is out of the bottle, it doesn't matter how righteous your cause, once that violence is out of the bottle, you cannot get it back in again. And he sees the downstream consequences like lava blowing down a mountain, like red hot lava, you know, taking everything in its path. And it it appalls him. And it changes something in him. Something actually in him solidifies around a determination that, that you can use the law, you can use parliament, you can use persuasion, you can use, the, you can use the monster rallies, you can use the power of the people, but you don't use violence. Um, because that, that just gives your enemy, that lowers you to the same level as your enemy. And um, so... That's what I grew up with. I grew up um, with the story of Dan O'Connell. He was my hero. Uh, another hero was St. Thomas More, um, you know, who was um, the king's good servant, but God's first. So there was that. There was the mix of the law and the power of the law and the power of persuasion through words and ideas. Mm -hmm. And there was then the power of faith. And the faith that I had and that was given, that, that, that I grew up with, was, there, was people would call it now a very simple faith, um, and it was, but it was focused on, you know, it was focused on peace on earth, goodwill to all men. It was focused on love your neighbor. Um, and that's what I absorbed from it. Um, you know, I know that there was acres of canon law and doctrine and teaching that later, um, you know, later made its inroads um, and, and was already making its inroads into my parents' life, you know, having 11 children that, you know, if, if they had grown in another generation, they most certainly would not have had. Um, but, but as I was growing up, it was the, the idealism of peace on earth and the story of the nativity and the beauty of that. And the, I love the music. I love the soaring, the soaring beauty of church music and the soaring beauty um, of the poetry around church music. And, and that just appealed to an aesthetic in me that, um, that really was not, that violence never appealed to. Um, I just thought, you know, violence is just so dull and so so utterly bereft of, of logic um, because, you know, we had just, I was born in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. God knows if any generation should have known the complete valuelessness of killing people, you know, because Europe was just a big bloodbath in the generation immediately before mine and in the decade before I was born. Um, it should have been that generation. Um, but so that's, I think, how I became wedded to the notion of law and the notion of, um, you know, of, of not seeking in violence an answer to anything. Mm. Um, so you, you, you become a, I mean, 
I'm going to say, it's going to sound very glib. You become a barrister just like mm. that. No, not just like that. Well, five years, five years of studying yeah. later. <laughs> an, an enormous amount of work. And then this, um, you know, the, the things that happen as one becomes, as one moves into adulthood happen. One marries, one has children, you go to Dublin, you start working at Trinity, you become a um, reporter or a contributor, you're involved in RTE, and that gives you, uh, well, it, you see what they think about people from Northern Ireland in, mm. in the Republic, and you also see Northern Ireland as as they see it. It it it, it gives you a different, gives you some new lenses. Um, yes, that's true, and it's disappointing. It was very disappointing to realise. Yeah. Uh, you know, in Dublin, how easily you were stereotyped. I mean, in the North, you're stereotyped as a Catholic. In the Catholic Church, you're stereotyped as a woman. In the When I came to Dublin, you were stereotyped as a Northern Catholic woman. <laughs> so, um, yes, uh, these were all great life lessons, Carlo, every one of them, mm. um, you know, that you just had to adapt to. Because between, between leaving school, going to university, becoming a barrister and going to Trinity, um, we, I had, I would say, my, not just me, but my family um, had experienced some of the most convulsive suffering um, and violence imaginable, you know. And um, so you're, I was carrying all that with me. Um, well, just, just describe some of those things that happened. Well, my brother John, I mentioned John's profoundly deaf. A group of young loyalists um, stabbed him outside our front door one night when he was coming home from the death club. They lay in wait for him and they broke a bottle over his head and then slashed his face and, and uh, stabbed him, tried to um, tried to kill him, actually, tried to sever his artery. They severed an artery, but not, not thank God, one that eventually... But he, he was bleeding badly when we found him, but the hospital was only a very short journey away, so they saved his life, thank God. Um, so that was, you know, that was pure, that was sectarian. And we knew the young man who did it, uh, who was the leader of the gang. We didn't know all of them, but we knew one of them, the one who was the leader of the gang, again, the neighbor's child, um, father very high up in the Orange Order. Um, and nothing happened. Uh, there was no prosecution. Regrettably, that young man went on to commit a murder of a, uh, the actual murder of a, of a Catholic bank manager uh, not far from us. Um, so the young police officer who had looked after my brother said to me subsequently, you know, what a pity we didn't prosecute that young man then, that the, 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 the bank manager might still be alive if they had done that. But anyway, that was Northern Ireland at that time. So there was that. And then there was, my father had a pub, he had, two, he had a pub and a half. He had a pub in, on the Falls Road, um, just off the Falls Road. And um, loyalists left a car bomb outside of it. Um, and... Um, it exploded, killing a young girl, a young woman, um, whom I didn't know her, but I knew her brother. Her brother was a friend of mine. She was a young married woman with two children, or with children, and um, uh, she died in that explosion. Um, my father um, suffered from catatonic depression um, after her death. He ran out onto the street. He had actually got all his all his clients, all his customers, he'd managed to get them all safely. The, the pub was called the Long Bar because it stretched across two streets. So it had a back door in another street. So he got them all out the back door, but went to the front just to check and make sure there was nobody left. And as he did that, the bomb exploded. He was fortunate. He, um, he was safe, safe, and nothing happened to him except that he saw her fall. She ran across the street um, searching for her child, who actually, as it turned out, was safe. But anyway, um, he, he grabbed her, and um, but she was already dead, apparently. Um, so I, we were told that the keys of the car had broken her neck, and my father thought she had just fainted because there was no, you know, there was no blood. She wasn't, you know, she looked perfect, and it was an RTE cameraman who was one of the first on the scene who told me uh, that he knew then that my father probably was not going to be right mentally for quite some time. Because he was the person who had to break it to him that the girl that he was holding, and who he thought was just, you know, was about to come around and had just fainted, he was the person who said, you know, that she was dead. So that was then. Then the other pub, um, rather ecumenically, which he owned a half share in, along with a man called Tommy Hunt. Tommy was a fellow Common man, 
Um, he and his brother Paddy were terribly well-known businessmen in Belfast. You probably know uh, some of their family, uh, the, the, the famous Hunt girls who are great musicians. They would have been nieces of Tommy's. And um, <sighs> the IRA um, set fire to that place. Uh, well, she left a bomb in it. The bomb went off, set the place on fire. And so he lost that as well. So we were left, and then of course um, uh, the the man who had been the orchestrator of the riot outside our home, um, and who, again who was not prosecuted, he came um, another night. He was uh, with a with a colleague, a uh, member of a of a of a loyalist gang, and they had between them they had two machine guns, and they emptied the contents of the machine guns into our home. So we never stood in that home again. That was the last time we ever stood in it. When my father went back the next day to try and retrieve, you know, bits and pieces, um, mainly clothes and things, really, um, uh, some a sniper um, shot at him. Luckily, missed him, um, and um, uh, so we never went back to that place again. And the, the sniper, um, anyway, he he was in the house. He had gone back into the house. The police were actually at the door, and the army. Um, helping him, as he thought, to get into the house to rescue a few bits and pieces when they came to him and said, you've got to get out of here. There's somebody trying to shoot you. And he got back into his car and a policeman walked over and said to him, um, do you realise your uh, your tax is, uh, your car tax is the week or a fortnight out of date? Hmm. And that was all that ever happened. That particular man who... Um, who um, who tried to kill my entire family that night, but managed not to kill anybody because they were so, or that day, that they were so ignorant of the fact that my family were all out at first mass. It was the morning of the 8th of December. And they clearly knew nothing about Catholic, you know, Catholic um, customs, uh, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Uh, they, they, they were all out at first mass um, when they came back. The little fellow, Clem, whom you know, who was mm. only a baby then, my brother Clement, uh, Clement was only three or four, and he was running around the garden picking up the spent cartridges. Um, you know, with the delight of a child finding something so, you know, exotic in the front mm-hmm. garden, not realising that this was designed uh, to kill him. Uh, my sister Nora's bed, I can only describe it as a colander. That's all I could describe it as. Um, just awful. So th- those were the kind of things that were going on. That young man who um, whom we knew, um, I mean, I, I actually defended him in court, um, funnily enough, um, as a barrister in, Another one of life's strange coincidences. Uh, Pascal O'Hare, God rest him, great Belfast solicitor, um, uh, gave me this case. And when I went over to the petty sessions to see who my client was and saw who it was, I nearly had a heart attack because it was the guy who had um, who had uh, tried to, well, who had intimidated us with that gang that night. And um, he'd also done exactly the same thing to another Catholic family. Um, and that Catholic family happened to have a member of their family was a senior police officer. And he came to the door and he discharged his weapon. That's how he got rid of them. They, 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 they did the same thing with him, you know, with his family throwing bricks and paving stones through their window. But he came and he scattered them with his gun. And I had to go into, I had to stand in court and put it to him um, that, he, that he couldn't possibly have recognised uh, the man who did to him what he did to me. And what, what he said in front of the judge was, sure, Mary, you know him as well as I do. So, right. um, and that particular, that particular, um, that was my first appearance in the petty sessions. And the, the, the tradition is that you're welcome, that the senior solicitor welcomes you, the judge welcomes you, the police officer. So I've gone through this whole palaver. Um, and the only person who seemed to know where they were actually at in the court of the two of us, my client and I, my client looked, like he was a man who was really at home there, which I guess he was. Um, I, it was my first case. I didn't even know where to sit. I was petrified. Um, and only for the senior solicitor sort of taking me in hand and saying, sit here, you'll be fine. And then the judge was the father of an old friend of mine, Charlie Stewart. His daughter, Paula, and I were best pals at school. <laughs> and, and he was welcoming me. And, um, and then I had to stand up and defend this lunatic, and um, who, of course, was pleading not guilty, needless to remark. Um, and... Um, uh, and, and, and when when the police officer in the witness box said, Mary, you know him as well as I do, Charlie Stewart nearly had a heart attack too. And I said, what's going on here? So we had to keep the whole thing calm. And then Charlie at the end, God love him, said, well, that I had made such a really good job of my first case that he was he gave him six months and he suspended it. 
Um, I was devastated because I knew my mother and father would be also devastated. And the story appeared in the front page of the Belfast Telegraph, I think it was. Um, And when I rang home that evening to tell my parents, uh, they'd got the evening paper. My mother said, don't come home anytime soon. She said, your father wants to know, is this this what we educated you for? But Mm. that man went on then. um, um, He was subsequently killed, murdered himself um, by one of his own, by one of his own henchmen in an internecine you know, viewed among loyalists. So that's how he died. He died a very violent death. Um, you, all sorts of things happen to you. You flourish. You have a marriage. You have children. And you decide to enter or, con- or you, 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 yes, you decide to enter the, the Irish presidential race Mm. some years later but and then what happens to you subsequently links back to these things that we've been talking about but what made you decide when Mary Robinson indicated she was going to retire early that um this is what you would do that you would seek the nomination well remember it was 1997 so it was before the Good Friday Agreement and um, I had in the and for some time before that, um, well, for for many many years before that, I had been involved in interchurch talks, in reconciliation efforts. Um, that's what I, I I had been the co-author of a report that was commissioned by the um, Protestant Catholic Churches on sectarianism. Um, produced one of the best documents I think um, of the troubles, um, analysing where the troubles originated and how we, all of us, could um, could move beyond them. And um, so I had spent a lot of time and a lot of my life was involved in those issues. But in particular, and unknown to everybody except my husband, John Hume, Jerry Adams, and Father Alex Reed, and the head of the Redemptorist Order, I had been one of, uh, and a man called um, the Jim Fitzpatrick, the head of the Irish News, and, and a newspaper that you know well in Northern Ireland. Um, I had been part of um, what is called the Redemptorist Peace Ministry, um, where they hosted the talks between Gerry Adams and um, John Hume, which were designed to try and get the IRA to accept that the war was over. <laughs> and that if they wanted to achieve anything, they would never achieve it by continuing violence, and in particular inflicting violence upon the very people that you were going to have to persuade sometime if you if you thought it was, you know, if, if you wanted a United Ireland, these were the very people you'd have to persuade. To visit continuing violence on them was simply, just simply unacceptable and also completely ineffective. So it was Father Alec Reid who'd come up with this idea a number of years earlier um, of the Hume Adams talks, and they went through a number of permutations Um, But John Hume, the whole point of them was that John Hume was conveying to Gerry Adams the language, the thinking, the structure, the analysis that characterised Hume and now characterises the Good Friday Agreement and giving him the language and the tools and a sense, in in many ways, the passion to go back and persuade the IRA that, that, that there was a way beyond violence, but it it led to democratic politics. Um, and and that, was the, that was the path they were going to have to embrace um, if, they were to, if their ambition for United Ireland was ever to have a future. And so um, there, were, there was huge hostility to those talks. They were private talks, but of course, like everything else, there were leaks and there were, um, and, and from time to time, um, um, Jerry Adams and John Hume would make statements uh, that, were, that were designed to try and nudge the IRA away from violence and into the political arena, um, the solely political arena. And anyway, John got, um, John Hume had been my hero since I was 13, since I first heard him speak in our Ardoin Hall, not about the Troubles at all, because this was before the onset of the Troubles, but he talked about the, the power of the, the halfpennies and pennies of the poor. Uh, he came to my parish to talk about um, the credit union movement, which I'd never heard of until then, but became a huge fan of that very day and that night. And uh, mm-hmm. listening to him, he just revolutionized my thinking. 
And and so I I was always um, an acolyte, you know, a quiet in the background acolyte of John Humes. He, for me, is the most outstanding and most significant figure in Irish history of my lifetime. And um, so I could see the, and knew from Father Alex, a friend of mine, I knew of the impact that the stress, the stress that was being put on John by he was not being backed by members of his party. He was obviously not being backed by unionists. Um, he wasn't being. He was being harangued and harassed by um, certain sections of the media, and um, you know it was t- taking its toll. He's only human after all, and so um, when the talks were reconstituted, when in a, I think their second iteration um, uh, after the Canary Wharf bomb, the, the redemptorists who were the hosts. Or the what's called their peace ministry. These talks were hosted in Clonard Monastery, um, where they also incidentally hosted talks with loyalists. I wasn't privy to those, um, and at least I wasn't part of them. And um, so um, I was part of um, this little group um, that the, the that the Redemptorists and Father Alec thought would be useful. There only were two of us in the group. That was John, uh, Jim Fitzpatrick, and myself. We we were we were in the room when when John and uh, John Hume and Jerry Adams were talking and um, and thinking aloud and planning and trying to see how we could all get beyond the violence. We were there, and our job uh, for Jim and I was to try and go out to um, John's um, uh, colleagues, uh, go out to key influencers in the media people who had been given John a hard time, and to try and explain to them that this was, this was miraculous. This was, this was exactly what needed to happen. We, needed, we were going to get nowhere if the violence continued. And uh, we needed something and somebody to persuade them to stop the violence um, on both sides, on the, on the loyalists and on the, uh, on the IRA side. Well, John and Jerry, John Hume and Jerry Adams between them had the makings of um, an idea and um, that could persuade the IRA um, to go on ceasefire and, importantly, to enter the democratic process. And so we went around and spoke to, that was our job. Now, so that, I had done that in the summer and in the, the, the summer, the winter, the summer before that, before 1997. So I was completely, I was consumed by John's vision for the future and his analysis of the troubles. I mean, nobody has ever bettered it. Um, and also, I was very involved in. Um, I had uh, was very involved also in the uh, writing up the sectarianism report, and then I had been asked by the World Christian uh, Meditation Community to run a series of seminars. The year before, the series of seminars had been given by the Dalai Lama. I was very privileged to be asked to give them in the summer of 1997. As a result of which, I wrote a book on reconciliation. So, if you like. When the summer of 1997 came, that was my whole hinterland. It was all mm-hmm. about peace. It was about reconciliation. It was, but also it was about new ideas as to how we could deliver that. And um, so, when um, when Mary Robinson decided that she, when President Robinson decided that she was not going to stay on, um, I have to say, my first thought and the first two words out of my mouth were John Hume. I thought it was going to be John Hume, and. Um, I thought that it was for, for me. It seemed so obvious that this was the moment when we were pushing toward the peace process, and I could see John, um, you know, with his vision. I thought the presidency would be ideal. As it turned out, Father Alec went to him and talked to him, and John said no, that he was not going to run for the presidency, that he had to stay where he was. That the um, bear in mind that we were a year away from the Good Friday Agreement that there was still so much work to be done in Northern Ireland that he simply could not, um, he couldn't extricate himself from it then. It was too dangerous to do that. It could fall apart. I understood that. But I also understood somebody has to fill that gap with that vision, with that passion, with that mission, the mission of building bridges to one another. Um, And so um, when Father Alex uh, he was among uh, one of my great friends, um, uh, Harry Casey came and he said, well, if it's not going to be John Hume, then he said, you've got to think about it. It has to be you. And so I did. And my husband said the same thing to me. Father Alex said the same thing. And that's how, if you like, the snowball started to gather, you know. And um, um, I began to realize that uh, my life's experience to that point 
gave me um, it gave me the makings of a very important and timely mission. Mm. You you became the president of a polity of a country where you didn't have a vote, mm. which strikes me as um, well worth remarking on. And then you, uh, in your terms, really, you, you, you did all sorts of things, but in my opinion, the most, well, for me, the most interesting was the engagement with loyalism. Yes. You, boy, did you and your husband engage indefatigably. Now, partly that was to do with what you alluded to earlier, which was the, the report on sectarianism that you wrote. Yes. You're, you had a deep understanding. Just tell us sort of quickly, <laughs> um, what, what, what conclusions had that report come to? And what then did you see as your, how did you, what were you hoping to achieve in your engagement with Jackie McDonald and particularly the UDA? The simplest way of putting it is that, that we, we could live, Catholics and Protestants were living in Northern Ireland, cheek by jowl, in mystifying ignorance of one another, dangerous ignorance of one another, um, full of passion about each other um, that could quickly turn toxic. And part of the difficulty was that you could live so close to people and be in their orbit, you know, live in the next street, up the street, down the street, and still be so dangerously ignorant of one another that when along comes a, you know, a, a firebrand like the Reverend Ian Paisley, who stirred up the sectarian tensions, which were always there, incidentally, they existed in every generation. And if you look at the history of our Ardoin, the pogroms go back for a hundred years. So to stir, the, the embers had never been put out, Carlo. They had never been quenched. They were always just waiting to be stirred up. And I felt the best thing we could do, because there was such fear of the Republic, fear of the Trojan horse of the United Ireland, fear of Catholics. I lived with it. I mean, I, I grew up on those streets. Martin too. Martin, he grew up in a loyalist area. We weren't frightened of these people. We weren't frightened of them. You know, they were our friends and neighbours, some of them. Some of them were our tormentors. And we, what my view was, they're always going to be our neighbours, always going to be our neighbours. Would it not be better if we put our minds to being the best neighbours we could be? And the only way we're going to be able to do that is to, is to offer hospitality without evangelising, without proselytising, because honestly, as you know, in Northern Ireland, our history is that we, you know, that both traditions in Northern Ireland are strongly evangelical, strongly proselytising. You know, I'll be your friend, um, you know, the idea of, you know, you'll have the pet Protestant friend um, or the pet Catholic friend. Why? Because that person, you're, you're hoping to turn them into, you know, into a version of yourself, which is so disrespectful of the other, the very otherness of the other. So what we wanted to do was to start, in a sense, from a blank sheet of paper and simply befriend, build up a culture of good neighbourliness so that when we got around to dealing with the tough questions, the really tough questions, that there would be that, um, that what do you call it, kind of like a, a cushion of goodwill um, that would simply have been developed around um, people being invited and, importantly, being courageous enough to accept the invitation. So that's what we set our minds to do. Now, bear in mind, Martin and I grew up in Protestant areas. We've both been to Queen's University. We had a lot of Protestant friends from Queen's. Um, so a lot of those people gathered around us and helped hugely. Um, and many of our friends who, I think particularly of Dennis Maloney, who was a lawyer working uh, both with loyalists and, and uh, loyalist paramilitaries and Republican paramilitaries, they just went out, they made the phone calls, they made the connections. Um, you know, um, I think of Car Colonel Harvey Vicker, who was um, a very, very senior member of the Ulster Unionist Party, uh, for a former colonel in the British Army, um, former member of the UDR. And before I was even elected, he wrote to me and he said, I think you're going to be elected. And if you are, I'm going to work with you because I firmly believe in the Building Bridges project. And he did. Day one, there he was and stayed with us, you know, right through the 14 years, uh, did phenomenal work. 
and was very helpful to me, particularly in relation to things like the um, the understanding of of the 36th Ulster Division and its role in the First World War among Ulster Unionists. I had grown up with that. I knew it was there, but it wasn't really a big part of my sense of identity. But I knew it meant a lot to them. And he was the person who really, really helped me to understand that. Um, also one of my colleagues, or a couple of my colleagues from Trinity College, um, who were experts in this whole area. And so with that, we knew that there were pockets of there were there were pockets of um history that we had because everything is so divided, everything is thus us them. Um, we had divided history in a way that flattered, you know, a divided history and a divided country and divided people. And sometimes we didn't tell the truth about history. And if we had told the truth about it, we would discover that we weren't as divided after all. And the First World War was an obvious one, a very obvious one. Um, and so we set to work on with those. And there were quite a number of people working, you know, in this people like Paddy Hart and Glenn Barr, who were already working in this field. And we, we joined forces with them, as it were. And then, of course, in 1998, I went to Messine with the Queen, where we had that wonderful opening of the Round Tower, dedicated not just to the 36th Ulster, though it is, of course, but also, you know, to the um, to, to the 16th Irish, to the 10th, to the to all the to the 200,000 men, mostly volunteers from the island of Ireland, most of them nationalists, most of them Catholics, whose stories got stuck in shoeboxes and attic because it didn't fit with the, you know, the, the story of the, the, the rising and the heroes of the rising and the, the fact that they fought in British uniform. Um, uh, all of that, that mix that became, that became skewed, we tried to help those who were helping to straighten it out. And actually, I think that was one of the great things that unlocked a lot of the, a lot of the kind of yesness that was in people that just couldn't find a way out, the decency that was in them, the desire to get to know each other better. It gave, anyway, most importantly, it gave us a platform that we could all talk on um, and share mm. and not feel not feel um, cut off from each other. And that was good. So look, when we when Martin and I went into the Aris, we had we were fortunate that we had a like we just had a mission and we just got on with it. And he sat on the phone, he gave up his job, you know, he gave up his practice. Uh, that he'd, you know, that he'd worked so hard to get because he he didn't become a dentist. You know, he went back to dentistry at, at you know at, at thirty years of age, and um, uh, you know, and went back to full time study and had you know helped to build up the practice along with his partner Des Casey, and uh, was doing grand and doing great um, in Bestbrook and Cross McGlen. One of his nurses, very sadly, Sandra, um, fabulous, fabulous girl from Bestbrook, her daddy was murdered in the King's Mill massacres, you know, mm. young, uh, a Protestant man from Bestbrook. You know, this is, this is how your life gets wound into the lives of other great people. And you know the goodness and you know the decency and you know the kindness that's in them. And you also know the barriers and the fears that people have. And so we just decided to make the Aris a place where you could come and have a cup of tea. There would be no camera on you. You know, we weren't looking for pictures or so because you could get very cynical, you know, around things like um, just spin and photographs just for the spin of the day, um, photo ops. We wanted to really build relationships and that's what we started to do. And people, you know, little by little, they started to come and um, Martin sat on the phone just phoning people, you know, Day after day after day, please come, please come. Cup of tea, lunch, chat, no hard talk, no mm. hard talk. I mean, this, this, you know, this simple this, friendship. This business of how things are wound together. Right at the very beginning of the conversation, I was talking about the um, your neighbours, the Shores, and then I mentioned the O'Reillys, and um, you know, just one of the facts that is threaded into the book is that uh, Tony and Miles O'Reilly. Um, who you knew very well when you lived in Ardoin, were murdered on the day them. you got married. Yes. I idolised them. There is something else. You, you, you talk about, your, about people having flattering histories, histories that flatter themselves. Um, 
you say uh, in this book some we could say unflattering things um about your own tradition mm. and your own church your um rebukes are quite fierce i would say and i think that must surely also have been at play when you were in during those 14 years when you were building bridges when you were communicating and trying to bring people together because i think i'm sure that that was recognized well i think can I put it this way? I grew up in a place where Catholics were undoubtedly the underdogs and the second-class yeah. citizens. Of that, there is no doubt. They were treated appallingly by the Protestant establishment, appallingly. Um, and, you know, that's uh, unionism was no friend to, to Catholics in Northern Ireland. Most that, definitely not. So, but that said, in another sphere altogether, I was a woman growing up in the Catholic Church. Um, and the, the church was was migrating from the days of, you know, of the old empire church through the Vatican Council. I was a teenager when the Vatican Council started. Um, we were also migrating towards membership of the European Union, towards women's rights. So things were, and more, most importantly, of course, um, probably most important of all, um, I belong to that generation that benefited from free education and the massification of third level education. My mum, my mum left school at fifteen. My dad at fourteen. That was the, that was the end of their education, essentially. You know, their formal education, um, and they didn't have the money to go to fancy schools. But I, on the other hand, grew up after the Butler Act had come in in Northern Ireland, and so um, um, my father was one of a group of young men. Uh, he belonged to the Knights of Columbanus. They got organised. They went to the bishop. They asked for the schools. You know the Christian brothers to grow the schools for the for the mercy nuns to grow the schools, so that this great opportunity, my father could just see. You know he was so he would so love to have had a, you know a decent education, and my mum too. Um, they could see this was the hope for their children, and um, and they weren't pushy parents in that sense at all. But they just knew this was the chance. So I took that chance. I mean I was very fortunate to have that chance in the Republic. That chance came a bit later, Carlo. It was. You know, the best part of 20 years later, mm. the Butler Acts were the end of the 40s, free second level education in the Republic was the end of the 60s. So um, so I'm growing up um, through the Humanae Vitae um, in, uh, it, you know, it was um, 1968. I was still a schoolgirl. We discussed it in school. We had debates about it in school. It was a time, um, and the, I was with the, the Dominican nuns who were, who were really very encouraging of us to think of ourselves as young professional women, you know, and as women who could have a voice. They weren't trying to turn us all into mad modern feminists, and I don't get me wrong, but nonetheless, um, they were willing to listen and to encourage debate. Um, and so I was fortunate. Um, I think a generation earlier, um, I would have been, you know, I'd probably, you know, got married and had nine kids like my mother, um, who was very much... Um, uh, she was, uh, and my father too, they were very faithful to the church because the church told them they had to be. They had to be obedient, that by virtue of their baptism, they had taken on obligations, even though they were only like days old. They had taken on obligations that you could never, ever, ever walk away from. And you had to obey the magisterium. Why? Because the magisterium was always right. Well, actually, as I was growing up, and developing the kind of critical skills that an education supposed, a good education supposed to give you, I kind of figured that some of this stuff, you know, wasn't just as infallible and as credible um, as they might have wished. And of course, we were taught nothing about church history, nothing whatsoever. It was all the lives of the saints, you know, all the hagiographies. Mm. Mm. Um, so the bad stuff, you know, we never learned about, like we never learned the Pius IX kidnapped Jewish children, God almighty. We never learned um, how anti-Semitic the church was, you know, and and how that thinking clouded the 20th century of Europe eventually um, <laughs> and played its part in carrying the the, the toxin, the poison of anti-Semitism. Um, we were never, we were never, we were never taught to critique. We were taught to be obedient, you see. And um, somewhere along the line, um, um, I tried being obedient, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I look back now in horror at some of the things that I was obedient to, and I'm mortified. Um, but um, over time, I realised, uh, thankfully, I was also born in the wake of um, the, probably the most important document of, the, of any century, 
and that is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which told me that um, I was equal to everybody, not better than anybody, but equal to everybody, and that I had the right to freedom of expression, freedom of opinion, freedom of belief, freedom of religion, and freedom to change religion. Now, in the Catholic Church, you don't have any of those freedoms. <laughs> Every one of them, by baptism, is circumscribed. Um, your freedom of belief is taken away from you. It's circumscribed to the extent that you're told that in relation to matters of faith and morals, your beliefs have to be obedient to what the magisterium teaches. Conscience has to be formed by the mag uh, informed by the magisterium. Um, you're, you're, once you're born a Catholic, you're a Catholic forever. Many people don't understand, for example, that excommunication doesn't mean that you're thrown out of the church. It merely means that you're a member in bad standing. And um, uh, so you, you, the church doesn't recognize your right to leave and to, uh, and to walk away. In fact, it, it regards this as very serious penal offenses in the church. You know, that if you, are, you're, if you apostatize um, or, or you commit heresy uh, or schism, schismatic. Um, so um, I, only, I only grew in, because I'm interested in, in, in law, basically, you know, and I'm interested in structure. Um, I started to be interested in the teaching of my church and I started to investigate it. The first thing I discovered, of course, is how, how ridiculously, dreadfully badly it treats women, mm. um, even to this very moment. Um, and, um, and, and then, of course, in the 1970s, I became involved in gay rights as founder member of the, um, of the campaign for what was then homosexual law reform, Carlo, God help us. Mm. I mean, it was to get rid of the criminalization of homosexual acts. Imagine. Um, and back in the uh, mid-1970s, I was a co-founder of um, the campaign to get rid of that, and um, along with David Norris and a group of other people who were fantastic and who succeeded in getting going all the way to the European courts um, to have that um, law um, struck down. And um, so uh, growing in consciousness about human rights, you be I began to realize my church was no champion of human rights either. You know, And that's hard for Catholics in the North to acknowledge because it, very often for many of us, it was our faith and going, and it was the routine and the ritual and the community solidarity you know, around our identity as Catholics that kept us going through the bigotry, that, mm. that tsunami of bigotry that we faced as Catholics in Northern Ireland. And there's always in that, isn't there, a resistance to the idea of turning on your own and, mm. admitting, you know, turning the, turning the camera round the other way or the mm. spotlight and mm. critiquing yourself internally. And, of course, the Catholic Church has no history whatsoever, apart from the Second Vatican Council, it has no real history of self-critiquing. It, it has an anti-self-critiquing culture, if the truth be told. It's more used to standing on uh, the great you know, pulpit of the world and preaching out to the world and telling the world what it's doing wrong, you know, and everything from climate change to migrants to back in the day, you know, church, the, you think of Pius IX, <laughs> you know, who, who, and his, you know, and his syllabus of errors, that long list of of things that were wrong with the world and God wanted the world to be not only a Catholic world, entirely Catholic, but wanted the Pope to be the emperor of that whole world. And, mm. you know, all this nonsense. Um, and you come to, I came to that as um, um, a searcher for, for real, the real story rather than the hagiography. Because when you finished your second term as president, you then... Well, it wasn't easy, but you became a, a doctor of canon law. Yes, which I went is, to Rome. Yeah. yeah, which is a formidable achievement. And you had to do your viva in Italian. Yes. Oh, my goodness me. I mean, this is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. And this is part of the process by which you're going to work for self-reflection within the church. Yes, this is where I placed myself. I mean, I'm I'm retired now, obviously, you know, from public office and from, uh, though I, I still do a little bit of work. I mean, I'm a part-time teacher of children, religion and law in the University of Glasgow. And since I left office, I have also, you know, done semesters teaching this particular course, which is about the, the rights of the child um, and the, the, the um, in particular, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which incidentally, the Holy See is a state party to. And that's what interests me, because here is the Holy See saying 
that it agrees that children should have, by virtue simply of being human, um, the right to freedom of information, freedom of the fullest education, not just filtered or heavily edited education, but the kind of education that helps them to make up their own minds because they have freedom of conscience, freedom of opinion, freedom of belief. And there's the church signs up to that, but doesn't do terribly much, it seems to me, to respect it in its teachings. So um, that's where I placed myself. Um, I did my, I went to Rome in 20, I left office in 20, late 2011. And by three months later, I was installed living in Rome in the Pontifical Gregorian University. Um, and I had decided that um, in order to be able to talk about these things, I had to have academic credibility. I couldn't just be, you know, I, I, I had to have the information. I had to have the credibility. I had to have the, the piece of paper, if you like. So I qualified as a canon lawyer. I already had a master's degree in canon law, incidentally, before I left, long before I left the Arras. Um, and I had a master's degree in canon law. And so I took that with me to Rome. And then I became what's called a licentiate in canon law. That's kind of like becoming, uh, you know, that's the professional qualification. You're now a canon lawyer with that. Mm. And then, um, and I did all that through Italian um, and Latin. And um, so um, then I thought, well, I'll stay on and I'll do a doctorate. Um, uh, so that I, by now I was really fascinated by the whole area of children's rights and canon law and how overlooked they were. And how important, I mean, the church has 400 million child members worldwide. You know, it's, it is, it's the, one of the most important key influencers in the world. And sometimes in, a, in our secularized kind of world, we tend to forget how important faith is to people. Like five out of seven people in the world believe in some faith or other. Mm. I was just looking at Joe Biden today, um, that, oh, that miracle, thank God, of the return to democracy um, in the United States. And the vast majority, just take a look at who's in his cabinet and who he surrounds himself with. A third of the people working with him are from Jewish backgrounds. Another third are from Irish backgrounds. About half of them are from Catholic backgrounds. They are people of faith. Now, they're not people of ultra-conservative, orthodox, right-wing faith. They're people who are thinking faith people, um, people for whom faith matters because it introduces them to the idea of human dignity and human equality and opens them up to the human person. Um, you're never going to hear from them things that are racist or sexist or anti-Muslim or, you know, and you look at all the women he has and you look at Kamala and this is the kind of, this is the faith that I subscribe to. And um, so uh, for me, uh, going going to Rome, getting those qualifications, um, it set me on the what I would call just the the rest of my life work. Mm. Basically, that's it. And, and given the recent report into the mother and maybe mother and baby homes, um, you're the you, yours is the kind of expertise which we need. Mary McAleese, you have been an incredible interviewee. Fantastically <laughs> lucid. Um, Mary McAleese's book, Here's the Story, a memoir, can be purchased at all good bookshops. But please, please refer to the ICC website for further details. We're in partnership with No Alibis in No Alibis Bookshop in Belfast. And on our website, you'll find information about how to get the book at No Alibis and further information about the ICC. If you go to Belfast, go to No Alibis. It's fabulous. An oasis of culture. Mary McAleese, thank you. Oh, Carlo, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You're so easy to talk to. Thank, thank you. you.